It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. I'm Dr. Carlos, professor in forensic psychology and your host of Inside the Badge, where we try to bridge the gap between the community and law enforcement. And today, we're going to talk about a topic that seems to be almost disappearing for some reason, but I don't think it really is. We have with us a very knowledgeable FBI agent, or former FBI agent, by the name of Brig Barker. He's got great insight and a lot of knowledge about terrorism, and he's going to give us a lowdown of what's really going on. Is it completely gone? Do we have to not worry about it anymore? Well, we'll find out. So let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Greg Barker. Welcome, Greg. Good afternoon, Dr. Carlos. How are you? Gray, how are you doing? We're doing good. Now, just before we get started, I know uh, down here below, find the website for Red Rock Security Group. Nope, Red Rock Global Security Group. <laughs> I'm trying to get that again. Right down here, you can find the website for redrockglobalsecuritygroup.com. So definitely check that out. You can find out what Brig is up to. Uh, well, I apologize, Brig, because I guess I've known you for a while now, if that's okay with you. For sure. All right. So, Brig, you know what? One of the things we've been doing on Inside the Badge, which is a law enforcement advocacy group and show, we're trying to find, learn more about the law enforcement officials. What motivated you to become an FBI agent? Wow, great question. That's going back a little ways. Um, uh, I, I, I went into the Army, um, so I spent five years as an Army officer uh, before I went in the FBI, and my mom uh, sent me uh, an article out of a newspaper back in the old days, clipped it and sent it to me, and it said that the FBI was looking for agents. And so I read it, and I got very interested in it, uh, and so I applied. And what's interesting is I went through the process once completely. I was waiting on an academy class, and then they had a hiring freeze. And I still wanted to get in the FBI. And so they reopened the window about two years later. I reapplied and had to go back through the process another year and a half before I got in. But I was motivated uh, by law enforcement. And I I can tell you a little bit more as far as the nuances of exactly why I went into it, but th that's kind of the, the impetus for me going into the FBI. That's a serious motivation. That's like a four or five year gap before you actually got in. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was, um, but I was, I was pretty excited about it. I mean, the, the inside baseball for me and everyone has a different story is 
I was actually a police dispatcher and I, I had the, the graveyard shift and I'd sit and read these FBI uh, magazines about most wanted and things like that. And it was dark, but it was very intriguing to me. And so I think that was one of the uh, strong motivators for me going in, even though once I got into the FBI, I went down a different track, but that's, that's kind of how I ended up in it. That's interesting. You know, we've had, uh, we had a dispatcher on yesterday. She was helping me co-host one of the shows. And uh, there's a lot of people that have, I've interviewed several cops now that have actually become cops while, before, after they were dispatchers. It's interesting. Yeah, for me, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of the, you know, a lot of boredom and then, you know, a few minutes of excitement. Well, that was a typical shift for me. Um, but I, I did have a lot of time to, uh, you know, delve into some of these old cases, cold cases, you know, from an outsider's perspective. So it was interesting to me. And I was drawn to it. So I think that that, that got me over the hurdle and, and very interested in, in joining. Fascinating stuff. I always love to hear how people got motivated. Did you ever watch any cop shows when you were younger? I mean, Adam 12. I think there was an FBI show. I mean, yeah, I never saw, yeah, I never saw the FBI show. I definitely watched uh, Adam 12. Chips, of course, uh, was key back then. Um, and uh, But I, I came out of a military family. And uh, I had, had done, like I said, five years in the military and, and really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but I was also part of it was I was also uh, engaged to be married. And I was kind of looking to get into a career where I had my feet on the ground a little bit more. Fascinating. You know, before we move on, I, from the bottom of our hearts, we truly appreciate your service in both capacities, soldier and as well as FBI. Well, thank you. So let's get into... A little bit more serious topics, terrorism. Uh, you hear the rumor that uh, ISIS seems to have been squashed. Maybe the last few remnants that are leaving Syria, I guess the last I heard about a week or two ago. I don't know how that is because I did see that they responded to the unfortunate tragedy of Notre Dame the other day. Um, but what is going on in the world of terror? Let's actually, let's do this. It's broad. It's making more narrow for us so we don't get too broad. ISIS, are they really gone? Are they still lingering around? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I probably have a unique perspective, Carlos, in that um, I, I spent the last 18 years of my FBI career involved in terrorism on Joint Terrorism Task Forces, but also uh, a lot of time over in Africa and the Middle East. And uh, I think we've talked before, I went to six different Arabic schools in the FBI. And so I was very involved in it um, and, and, and had some uh, interesting experiences along the way and worked a lot of Al-Qaeda matters. Um, so with that, uh, I would say, and I'm not a sky is falling person. Uh, you know, I, I never have been. I, I think working in the FBI and law enforcement, military, you see so many things that not much surprises you anymore. You don't get excited about much anymore. And, you, you know, you see some, some dark things. And so, um, I think I'm, I'm not someone that gets, uh, you know, too concerned about uh, what's going on. It's not chicken little for me. But I do believe that, uh, based on my experience, um, we are in a very difficult uh, place right now. Because we had ISIS uh, in Iraq and Syria and 30 to 45,000 foreign fighters, and many of those have gone back to Europe, back to Asia, to the U.S., uh, we have this diaspora that I'm very concerned about. They've taken an ideology, a poisonous ideology, uh, knowledge of how to build uh, IED devices, 
how to use encrypted communications. They've taken that back to their home country. And as we both know, that can metastasize in, um, they can grow networks back in their, their homeland. So at this point, I, I, you know, I have to applaud the U.S. military, the Iraqi military, and all that they've done, uh, you know, decimating ISIS there in uh, Iraq and Syria. But I also say the war's not over. I would say, uh, you know, we've got 50 years in front of us because of how this is going to multiply. And is it fair to say um, they're pretty patient? If it takes them five or seven years of re regrouping again, as networking, as you said, in the diaspora, these little people that start recruiting, and they can take up to six months sometimes to recruit one person. They're a pretty patient bunch, aren't they? Yeah, it's a great point, and I think we miss that point a lot of times. Um, they are, well, first of all, let me just start with, we're talking about an ideology uh, that is the root of ISIS. It's the root of Al-Qaeda. It's the root of Boston, San Bernardino, Orlando. It's all the same. It's the Salafi jihadist. Uh, manhaj, as they would call it, or ideology. And so um, it's, it's all rooted in this very easy to understand ideology that takes on a life of its own. ISIS is patient. The ideology is built on patience. Al-Qaeda is very patient. So, um, and, and if you want, we can discuss the difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're very patient. And the other thing we have working against us is that the ISIS spokespeople through you know the last uh, three or four years have called for non-technical attacks. So drive your vehicle into pedestrians, uh, just take a rifle, go to a mall. So um, uh, we know that that has been more of the focus, and we also know that it does motivate people to do things on the other side of the world. You brought up a great point, the distinctions between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And one thing I know about ISIS, uh, they had the apocalyptic narratives that really helped them get people and give them urgency, right? We got to take care of this now. We're winning the battle, the, the scriptures say, or whatever you want to call it. We're moving. When they had Dabak over there in Syria, oh, yeah, we got it. This is the, the prophecy. How much has that demoralized them now that that's all gone? <laughs> I mean, the Rumaya, the Dabak, the magazine was called after that city. got changed to Rumaya. I don't even think there's a magazine anymore. How big of a movement is that? Is that a big demoralizer for ISIS people? Yeah, it's interesting to watch kind of the shifting sands uh, because they had the magazine Dabek, right, which is a, a small suburb uh, in northern uh, Syria and um, near Aleppo. And so they named it that because, as you, as you probably know, maybe some of the listeners don't, that was where the final battle would be. The eschatology of this ideology is very focused on end times. So they said the final battle with the Kufar is going to take place in Dabek, right? Well, then the um, Kurds uh, essentially uh, took over Dabek, and so ISIS lost Dabek. So they had to change the name of the magazine to Ramiya, which means Rome, uh, which is probably demoralizing, right? And so now uh, they're kind of left with um, no you know, swath of land, and so it's got to be demoralizing overall. However, they will take it and they will turn it positive as far as recruitment. We know the apocalyptic message uh, greatly increases recruitment, just like, um, you know, beheadings on video. We know that that sends recruitment group. So um, they know, you know, the cause and effects, and they know that um, all these things can be turned in a certain 
way to um, increase recruitment and uh, and help out their cause. Yeah, you make a great point. Thank you for explaining that to people. And it is, it's a fascinating uh, distinction between them and Al-Qaeda, because if I remember correctly, Al-Qaeda doesn't have that apocalyptic narrative per se that really drives people. They have a kind of a different strategy. Yeah, so I think overall, um, ISIS, you know, I've always seen them as more uh, kind of thugs, thuggery, uh, where Al-Qaeda is more of the, uh, you know, in a, in a strange way, quite professionals. Uh, they're still built on the same ideology, the Salafi jihadists, which is different than the four mainstream denominations of Sunni Islam. Um, but uh, they also have a different bent. So if we go back to Zarqawi in 2005-2006 in Iraq, um, he had the same ideology as Al-Qaeda with AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, but he felt that moving forward and carrying out certain activities, uh, he wanted to shape that, and Al-Qaeda had issues with how he was doing it, and that's when the attacks on the Shia started happening, the beheadings and things like that. Well, same with ISIS. They have a different uh, slant on how things uh, should you know, move forward. Um, but again, they're still rooted in the same, same ideology, but Al Qaeda there, I call them a little bit old school, but I'm still very concerned about Al Qaeda because like you mentioned earlier, they are patient, they're quiet planners, uh, and, uh, bin Laden's son now, uh, who's, uh, really uh, gained some traction and is considered charismatic and a motivator, um, um, he is gain, gaining a, a decent following now. And so that's not good for any of us around the world. So, um, but, but his take is going to be, you know, quietly plan, be more cautious, uh, don't be emotional, you know, and he's, and he's taking shots at uh, a diocese with that. That's a great point. You know what, it brings that hotly debated, we're not going to have to get into it here today, but it does bring up that topic about, what should you have done with the child? Should you have taken his kid with you, uh, put him in prison? Because a lot of people figured he was going to probably grow up and be upset about what happened to his father. He's probably going to get a very different narrative from all those around him. And the blame gets shifted on us. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a hot, highly debated issue. What do you do with those children from those individuals? Um, now, he's still – is he is – he, uh, how would you say more accessible, more visible than his father was? Because his father was kind of quiet for a long time until he kind of got hungry with the media. But besides, before that, I think he was pretty quiet. Yeah, I mean, I think he's just kind of come on the scene mostly in the last year. Uh, I think that, um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I won't say I'm out of the game, but uh, I don't track it like I used to. From what I understand, he has a, a regular show uh, where he, you know, promulgates his beliefs and there's this call to action, call to jihad. So um, I think he's starting to probably gain some confidence uh, and um, continuing to uh, increase his following. So uh, there's, it's kind of a slow build right now for him. But from what I'm understanding, uh, he is becoming somewhat popular. That's problematic. Um, I wanted to get into more of what you do as well. And maybe you can give the audience uh, some advice and maybe some ideas of what you do in regards to protecting ourselves from visiting certain countries. Uh, but before we do that, uh, here's another question I wanted to ask you, Greg, is I ISIS is Baghdadi. Uh, some say he's dead, some say he's not, some say he's halfway. I, mean, I have got no idea where this man is. Uh, is he still around, do you think? Or 
Yeah, a lot of mixed uh, reporting on this, Carlos. Um, uh, I, I, the last thing I saw on him was recently when ISIS lost their final stronghold in Syria down near Deir Zur. And um, uh, everything that I've seen is that he potentially uh, has abandoned, uh, you know, the group in the final days. Now, if, if he's dead, not much he can do, right? Um, but, you know, if he, if he did, you know, it's like the discussion we always have of, you know, a man's worth is not determined by how he comes into a job, but by how he goes out. And so when I look at Baghdadi, and I, I teach at conferences on the evolution of ISIS and how it started with AQI and, and evolved through the years and jumped up in 2014 till now, um, Baghdadi was in a, you know, in a Buka prison uh, in Iraq. And we think that was probably, uh, you know, probably the, the chamber that, that created all the leaders for ISIS. Um, it's still unknown whether he even has religious credentials. So, you know, my take is, you know, you have this narcissist, which we commonly see, uh, you know, in, in some of these countries uh, that, uh, you know, kind of took on a life of his own and um, the group starts revering him and following him. Um, and, but at this point, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, as far as I know, it's, it's unknown. They don't know where he is. So, uh, I don't think that he's he's left Iraq or Syria. That'd be pretty difficult to do. Um, but what we also know is that ISIS will recycle itself. We know that a lot of them will go to prison in Iraq and in, in mainland Iraq. Um, they'll slip out the back door. They'll be released out the back door. And we have this vicious cycle. So ISIS, even though we talk about the diaspora being a problem throughout the globe, um, ISIS, again, will regenerate. Um, and these children you mentioned, are going to grow up uh, with a certain bent uh, and, and some of them will gain this ideology and, and become action men, as we call them, uh, to, to further the cause. So uh, none of this is going away. You know, it's, it's like to me, and I never worked drugs, but it's like trying to stop drugs coming into the U.S. Yeah, you can arrest a bunch of them, but guess what? You know, here a year from now, you're going to have more leaders, cartels will grow, and it, it's, a, it's a, you know, continuous cycle. Absolutely. Well said. And it's interesting because I know I have some context down there in Iraq and Iraq. And last I heard there, they're seeing some pamphlets every so often from ISIS being distributed, trying to get traction again. Uh, it doesn't seem to be holding as well as it did originally, but like we said earlier, they're patient. Um, Baghdadi, if I remember correctly, he's not like Anwar Awlaki, where Awlaki had hundreds of sermons and and uh, videotapes that you could find on YouTube. I think YouTube removed most of them, thankfully. Um, but he was able to develop almost a martyrdom when he was killed. But Baghdadi doesn't really have anything that I know of, correct? And uh, so he doesn't have that ability so easily to get, become a martyrdom because he just kind of disappeared most of the time. He was gone. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, those, so those are, if I, I mean, if I was going to write a book, I, I'd write it about the the 10 darkest figures in jihadist history. Um, I would include both of those people that you just mentioned. Alaki, we know a lot about him, um, and he gained a great following once he got over to Yemen. Of course, he was in San Diego, uh, and then he was in Northern Virginia for a time, uh, and then went over to Yemen, and then um, uh, met his demise in 2011. Uh, but he motivated, he was the uh, uh, you know, motivator for a lot of jihadist attacks around the world we can pretty much put our finger on that. And, and part of that was he was an English speaker and not real charismatic. I've listened to, you know, a number of his sermons 
but had a wide following where Baghdadi uh, is more kind of this dormant, quiet, shadowy figure that, that had very few public appearances um, and really just mainly promulgated, um, you know, the, the ISIS war, um, you know, through his, his discreet channels. So it didn't look like he was one that was looking for uh, the glory uh, that al probably was. So two very different leaders. It'd be interesting to study both of them, um, but both uh, have caused, uh, you know, such great carnage uh, throughout the world. Oh, absolutely. Now I want to get to a little bit about what you do now. You're providing a lot of security services for people. Uh, do you, so you, how do you, what do you do with that? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so Red Rock Global Security Group, uh, I'm the CEO and uh, we do a couple different things. One, we run counterterrorism academies for law enforcement. So we take um, a week, it's basically five days, and we teach street cops uh, how to recognize and identify uh, burgeoning jihadists in their community. Uh, there's, there's very little that's being done with that. You know, cops don't get a whole lot of training on this. So we try to step into that and, and help them along the way. There's a lot of practical exercises. We bring in role players and we're teaching them how to recognize this before something goes boom. You know, we always talk about, talk about left of boom. We're that left of boom trying to teach them how to do it, how to develop informants in the local community uh, and how to disrupt plots. So that's one thing we do. Um, the second uh, uh, area that we're focused on is our uh, executive overseas travel course. And with that, we teach executives or uh, folks that travel overseas uh, how to um, get over, take care of whatever their mission is, and get back safely to their family and friends. So it's a super fun course. Um, it's all about situational awareness. It's about you know uh, how to avoid kid being kidnapped. That's the main focus. But if you are kidnapped, this is how you will deal with this. So we teach them defeating restraints like handcuffs, wire, rope, tape, things like that. Uh, but we also teach them uh, combat driving. Uh, we teach them uh, you know uh, if they see an AK-47 in the streets how to pick it up and defend themselves. So it's, it's a lot of fun. We do a lot on communications while you're overseas with your cell phone uh, and other devices, but uh, those are the two main areas we focus on. That's fabulous. That sounds like a lot of fun. That'd be a fun class to take. Um, and it's good because a lot of our audience is made up of law enforcement, law enforcement enthusiasts, as well as uh, some executives out there for sure. It's very important stuff. And it's Red Rock Global Security Group. You can see the website right down here, folks, if you're interested, which I think you would be. I am. Uh, so, Greg, as we get ready to wrap up, um, and that applies to anywhere those executives are, are traveling to some of those countries that might be uh, people don't think about, but like Honduras, if you go there, or if you go to Colombia, sometimes those countries don't get talked about much, but they have some issues with drug cartels and things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the course is built out. If you're going to Germany, or if you're going to uh, Syria, it, it really covers the whole gamut. Um, I've uh, worked in Honduras. Uh, you know, our, the folks that teach the course, we've been to many, many of these countries, so we tailor fit it. So if it's a group that says, hey, we regularly go to Japan and we go to, you know, China or whatever it may, may be, we tailor it to them. Or if they say, hey, our guys just travel all over the place and we make it more generic. So, um, but it's all just very, very, uh, uh, 
um, up to date. It's the uh, really the the top training that 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 you can put together for folks and and even executives. A lot of it's about protecting their information. So when they pass through customs, we want to help them protect their company's data so that that's not stripped away, you know, during their trip. That kind of thing. Yeah, so you can make me like Liam Neeson from Taken, huh? Okay. <laughs> Give me a particular set of skills, I guess, is the line. I had to do it. I had to do it. Excellent <laughs> stuff. Rick, thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate it. Yeah, my privilege. I, I uh, hope that uh, I put some things out there that can help the listeners. And if anybody has any particular questions or requests or interests, uh, just reach out to me directly. Absolutely. You know what? I did forget something I was going to ask you. Uh, do you watch TV shows or movies at all as, as a counterterrorism expert or the FBI? You know, as um, having been involved in that world for about 30 years, um, my favorite show, and, and this is going to probably strip away any credibility that I have, is The Office. Uh, <laughs> just because it's, it's kind of mindless TV, but I, I, I kind of like to veg on, on those kind of shows. Um, my favorite movie, if you're going to press me that, that far, Carlos, is... Uh, the Equalizer with Denzel Washington. Um, yeah, that's my my favorite. Um, but I spend a lot of time watching NHL hockey, especially right now during the playoffs. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've interviewed hundreds of officers now, and I'd say over 80% don't watch TV. If they watch anything, it'd be sports. They don't watch any of those crime shows. Let me ask you this question. Did you, did you ever see Looming Tower? Did you see that series? I watched uh, probably about four episodes of that, uh, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't continue. I, I was very involved in um, the 98 embassy uh, bombings case. I was actually working in Kenya and Uganda then, and then also um, the 9-11 case. I was in Cairo. Uh, so I was very intimately you know, familiar with a lot of things that went on with, with uh, both of those cases. Um, but you know, it's the same thing. If you work in an ice cream store, you're not going to sit and eat ice cream all the time. That would be my analogy. It's probably a horrible one. Uh, but yeah, I just, uh, for me, I just like kind of the, uh, you know, the mindless TV or something I can watch with my kids. Yeah. Get you the hockey. I get it. I get it. Well, thank you so much again, Brig, for being here. Stay safe out there. We truly appreciate the time. Thank you for your time. And, uh, uh, again, if anybody needs to reach out, please do. Right down here, folks, you can see the website, redrockglobalsecuritygroup.com. Don't miss out on that. Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can follow us anywhere, Instagram, Twitter, on YouTube. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and that little bell so you get notified anytime these interviews come up or any other videos we post. And don't forget, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I think I covered everything, folks. Stay safe, everyone. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.